Hello, I'm Tony Stamp. I'm Melody Thomas. And this is Pop Culture, where we explore themes and characters of popular culture, how they came to be and what their reception says about us as people. Now, every episode, one of us takes the helm and leads the other into uncharted waters. And so far, I've introduced mermaids, which we went into thinking would be easy and breezy, but was much more fraught than anticipated. Mm, Mm. Those were treacherous waters. (laughs) And I helped illuminate the huge but still somewhat unknown world of gaming. So what are we doing today, Melody? We're going to be exploring the notion of taste. Oh, I love it. It sounds delicious already. As in good taste or bad taste, where do our ideas around taste come from? What do our tastes say about us? That kind of thing. And there are going to be some moments in here where I'm not sure if it's content warning level, but there's going to be some descriptive language. So just Mm. choose your time wisely to listen. Well, you've piqued my interest. Before we get into the academic stuff, I wanted to start us off quite literally with a conversation about bad taste, the movie. Yeah, massive fan of Bad Taste for sure. And I guess 80s horror films in general, and particularly New Zealand horror films. That's Andrew Burt. I found him on Twitter when I put a call out for New Zealand's biggest Bad Taste fan, and he wasn't the only one who responded. So technically I'll have to say that he's one of a group of super fans. And it seems unlikely, but for anyone who doesn't know, do you want to briefly introduce Bad Taste? I'd love to. It is Peter Jackson's first film that he made in 1989, a splatter film that went on to become an internationally beloved cult classic. Plenty of gore (laughs) and marks the beginning of PJ's splatter phase. So he followed up with Meet the Feebles and then Brain Dead. I grew up with three older brothers who basically fed me a diet of horror films from about the age of five. Andy Burt had a dubbed copy of Bad Taste. Oh, like a dubbed VHS. Yeah, so old school pre-internet piracy before downloading. Yeah, so I just kind of grew up on a diet of that, and it's comedy as well. It's as much a horror as it is a comedy. So even though it is so bad, you do see that Peter Jackson's talent coming through and there's literally memorable bits that will stick with you. So, yeah, pretty incredible film. So this conversation that you're hearing now is one that I had with Andy before I had watched Bad Taste. Have you seen it since? Yeah, I've seen it now. Oh, okay, cool. (laughs) Yeah, but until very recently I had never seen Bad Taste. That is shocking as a New Zealander, Melody. Well, it's not a New Zealand film, but we just discovered you've never seen The Little Mermaid. Yes, that's true. (laughs) Touché. So after this first conversation, I went off and watched the movie and Andrew went off and watched it again for the first time in a while. Oh, and, right. and when I went off to watch it, I had warnings from Andrew rattling around in my head like this mm. one. Are you squeamish at all or didn't you like the gore? Am, or? I think I am a little bit squeamish, yeah. I've read about okay. the scene where the aliens eat vomit. Yeah, that's, that's okay. the one I was thinking of that springs to mind. So maybe just have a sick bag nearby if you're, um, <laughs> if you're not into that stuff, that <laughs> might help. It's funny, eh, that like... There are scenes of aliens eating brains and stuff, and that's fine. But eating vomit? In the end, I found the vomit-eating scene not too bad because it looked like melted goody-goody gumdrops, so it wasn't that realistic. And the (laughs) scene where um, Peter Jackson is eating brains out of somebody's skull, I found a lot harder to watch. Okay, well, there you go. So we went away and watched it and then came back together in person to reflect on our experiences. And just in case there are any bad citizens like me who had never seen bad taste, (laughs) herein lie some spoilers. Watching again, well, I mean, it's been what, probably close to 20 years since I'd last seen it, but still enjoyed it, probably just as much as I did back when I was a kid. The acting, I noticed, wasn't up to scratch as to what I remembered when I was a kid, but yeah. the humour, it was still funny. It's very funny. You know, it's more of a comedy than anything else. Now, 
What are you, Dirty Who, is doing on my planet? I made a tally of times that I was really grossed out and times yep. that I laughed out loud. Beautiful. And I yeah. laughed out loud 13 times, according to 13. this. 13, that's a good strike rate. I thought so. And yeah. I was I was only really super grossed out yeah. nine times. Nine, okay. So the humour's over. over humour one yeah. out at the yeah, end, yeah, yeah, end yeah. of the day. It was quite off the wall. You know, the, like the gore and that, it's just so over the top. It's almost cartoonish, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So you're kind of removed from it. Yeah, yeah. So I went mm. on to YouTube to have a look at some of the comments under the film yeah. there. And... From what I could tell, the majority, mm. if not all of them, are from men. Yeah. Like, yeah, why yeah. is this particularly appealing to men and why yeah. are all the super fans men? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I guess I watched it when I was a boy, mm. little boy, and it kind of captured me. I mean, there's no females in the film, for one, to begin with. The boys, they come in to save the day. So I guess it yeah, is a real... Yeah, there's a button, eh, to, put, to call them to in. To call the boys. labelled the boys. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I've got a super secret government department. Potentially the reason why, it may not have been intentional, but Peter Jackson, he took four years to make this film on weekends, roping in his friends. Mm. He's a self-confessed, a bit of a nerd. I just wonder if he didn't know females that well enough who would have given up four years of weekends for him. Yeah. You know, maybe that could be why there's no females <laughs> featured in this film. Not his mum. Maybe his mum. Well, his mum went to oven. Well, his mum went to Obviously, they kind of would have helped fund it and he made all the props in the house and everything, so... I could throw some things at you and be like, this person likes this. Do they have good yeah. or bad taste? Yeah, yeah, This yeah. film, yeah. to you, signifies exquisite taste. Yeah, I'd say so. And I reckon because I think anything that enters into that cult kind of realm, I think, has to be good in some way because mm. it built up a following, you know? Yeah. You're good, you have good taste if you enjoy this film, I believe. Get out of there, boss, Derek. I can't do that. I'm a Derek. Don't run. There you have it. Bad taste is good taste. Mm. Are you a bad taste fan, Tony? I've got to confess, it's been a long time since I watched it, mm. but I remember thoroughly enjoying it. I mean, I, I would have been in my teens. I was a bit of a late bloomer to, to horror, so kind of the opposite to, to Andrew. Mm. But um, then you took to it with enthusiasm. <laughs> that's exactly what happened, yeah. yeah. Almost like I was making up for lost time. Okay, Taste. Do you want to hear some academic theory about where it comes from and what it says about us? I'd love to. So do you know the Bloomsbury 33 and a Third series? No. It's the series of short books about albums that was first published in 1969 and it covers works from the likes of Jimi Hendrix, The Kinks, mm -hmm. Led Zeppelin, The Beatles and Celine Dion. Okay, that last one uh, <laughs> caught me off guard. Exactly. So what is Celine uh, doing in there? As the story goes, Slate music critic Carl Wilson submitted a bunch of proposals for a book as part of the series, but he kept getting turned down because his choices were too obscure. Mm. So in what he calls a fit of peak, he proposed a book about Celine Dion, and it got the go-ahead. So oh, that's awesome. the resulting book is called Let's Talk About Love, Why Other People Have Such Bad Taste. And it was first published in 2007 and again in 2014. Huh. And in it, Carl uses the phenomenon of Celine Dion and the kind of broadly wielded mockery of her mm. as a jumping off point into discussing topics like the nature of taste. Everywhere you could look in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, there was, there was some kind of mockery of Celine Dion going on. Carla Wilson. And that had been going on right from her beginnings, you know, from before the sort of Anglophone world was really aware of her. She was a child star in Quebec and she got the same kind of mockery for her bad teeth and her gawky adolescent ways in the Quebec press at the beginning. You know, gradually she became sort of a sacred cow in Quebec and, and nobody would do that in the same way now. 
And that immediately in the research started to rouse sympathies that I hadn't had. I think that it's one thing to privately nurse some kind of distaste for something, but when you understand that someone's being mocked and pilloried and and that it's kind of a snob calling card in some ways, a Celine Dion joke at a certain time, the way that, you know, 10 years later, a, a Nickelback joke. No one talks about the studies that show that bad music makes people violent. Like, Nickelback makes me want to kill Nickelback. <laughs> There's always sort of punching bags in pop culture that you can prove your superiority by by making cracks at the expense of. Mm. I will say that in the age of social media, I do often genuinely feel sorry for celebrities these days. Like Nickelback yeah. was mentioned then. They do respond to that sort of stuff on Twitter. And so you know that they're seeing it. And I can't help but feel like they're human beings and, yeah, feel bad for them. I agree with you. But mm. then there's the people like James Blunt who yeah. take that kind of thing and turn it around and turn it into this brilliant comeback on Twitter. <laughs> Little bit of James Blunt never hurt anybody. Depends where I put it. Well, yeah, he's clearly smart enough and has enough self-awareness and I guess a pretty incredibly thick skin yeah. to, yeah, roll with it. He's he's surprisingly awesome. Yeah, he is. He's, <laughs> he's worth a follow on Twitter for sure. But no, I, I think about that a lot mm. as well and how dismissive we can be of people when, when they've put everything into something. And we're going to get into that kind of thing a little bit later on when we have a discussion with Duncan Grieve about 660. One of our New Zealand cultural punching bags, I feel like it's maybe <laughs> it's safe, safe to, to say. say. Yeah. So in Carl Wilson's book, there's two threads, and one is Celine Dion, her music and the reception of it, and the other is the nature of taste and how it's formed. So one person whose theories Carl explores is Immanuel Kant, who Carl refers to as one of the great granddaddies of aesthetic philosophy. He sort of posed the idea that there's a beauty that stands outside of all of the subjective positions on it, and that in order to judge it, you would have to have the most ideal cultivated observer, ideally crowds of them, and that whatever kind of consensus they would be able to reach, then you would be able to discover the nature of this objective category of taste. And then centuries after Kant came Pierre Bourdieu, who I think it's best for you to tell us a bit more about his work. So he did over the course of many years, generally around the early 60s in France, a huge sociological study where he surveyed French people of all different classes about what forms of art and music and what their preferences were. And he plotted them all on a giant chart, basically, which became this book called Distinction. And he found, I think, in ways that wouldn't quite be true now, but at the time were almost stereotypical, that the tastes of different classes fell into kind of predictable sort of lowbrow, middlebrow, and highbrow categories. And the main thing that he posited was that the primary function of taste is to distinguish oneself from social groups that you wouldn't want to be like. So so that what you where you see this kind of primary tensions are right on the borders of class groupings, lower middle class people rejecting their sort of former working class tastes and trying to aspire to a more respectable middle class taste. And then you see sort of upper middle class people rejecting middle class tastes and trying to aspire to high art and more rarefied objects of interest. And his argument was that in each case, people were trying to make sure that they weren't mistaken for those other people. <laughs> this is really interesting and it's really mm. telling. It's funny when I think about this sort of aspirational taste and trying to move away 
from a certain class group. I always think of food. Okay. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure why. I think you grow up hearing about things like caviar and stuff. Goat's cheese must be one yeah, of those. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I've never really equated it to, to music and movies so much. Well, not consciously anyway. And we're about to hear how this idea was very much true of a time but has become slightly less true over time. So okay. it's something that Carl's about to explain called the omnivore ideal. Yeah, I mean, this is... Um, theory that was developed by American sociologists in particular and some Australians 20 years or so after Bourdieu did his work, so in the 80s and 90s. And the theory was that rather than having these strict highbrow, middlebrow and lowbrow categories of culture, you know, a lot of that broke down after the 60s. And it's, it's no longer seen as high status to simply be an appreciator of high art. If that's all that you're into, then then you're kind of boring and a throwback. And what's really developed is this ability to pick and choose from what would have used to be considered kind of different levels of culture. You know, you might be interested in opera, but you're also going to be interested in, say, death metal. And it's the way that you can mix and match and sort of code switch linguistically around all of these things. And, and it marks you out as being a person of sophistication the same way that, you know, a, a, having a Manet once would have done. It's funny, when he was talking about people who love opera as well as death metal, uh, I was thinking of a specific friend of mine who does <laughs> love all those things. He goes to death metal gigs and then will genuinely go to the opera at the town hall. I fully take on board the point that that's becoming more common. Yeah. So before we move on, Bourdieu explored the system of taste. He called it distinction, but same, same. And then he broke it down into different elements. And one of the important ones is cultural capital. This is kind of what we know as cool. So someone with cultural capital has a big stock of reference points. They're savvy. They know about things other people don't. And this relates to what we know as guilty pleasures because when someone is quote-unquote cool, they are more readily able to admit to having guilty pleasures. It's like a game of poker where if you have loads of cultural capital in the bank, you can afford to risk some of it. And somebody who's more insecure about their cultural position is not going to be able to sort of like things ironically. There's not going to be able to go like, oh, but I'm really into Hall and Oates. To say that, you have to be so sure that people are not going to be mistake you for someone who likes Hall and Oates naively. That you, could, that you can then make your sincere argument for the cultural importance of Hall and Oates. Can I just say that I love Hall and Oates <laughs> and there is no irony involved? Well, I can't go for that as a jam. But perhaps <laughs> perhaps you can say that because you have cultural capital. Mm. Maybe you're cooler than you think you are. Maybe. <laughs> so guilty pleasures, this leads really well into your assignment for this episode. Do you want to introduce what we're about to hear? Yeah, well, I was quite wary about this one. You asked me to go <laughs> up to my RNZ colleagues and ask them about their guilty pleasures. And I wasn't really sure how people were going to respond. But then as soon as I started, it became a great deal of fun and people were actually really (laughs) forthcoming. Yes. So to begin with, I just turned to the desk next to mine and asked my Music 101 colleague, Alex Ben. Trash TV is the guiltiest of guilty pleasures and you find yourself going, where have the last 14 hours of my life gone and why am I carrying my laptop in from the kitchen to the bedroom to the bathroom so I can watch things while I'm brushing my teeth. Why can't I stop watching? Why am I still in this vortex? Susan Strongman from RNZ's In Depth. My guilty pleasure, Tony, is Mariah Carey. Why guilty? I guess she's kind of not considered to be cool or like highbrow. 
Not that I really care about that kind of thing, but maybe I do. Wallace Chapman, what is your guilty pleasure? Well, I suppose my guilty pleasure in terms of music is pretty well known by now, and it would have to be Toto. I'm in Yacht Rock heaven when I hear Toto. (laughs) Jesse Mulligan, what is your guilty pleasure? Uh, It is the 1985 Grammy Awards performance, Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton doing Islands in the Stream. And uh, it used to be just uh, a solitary pleasure. And then one day I got a knock on the door from the downstairs neighbour who said, look, I'm sorry, but can I please ask you to stop playing that over and over again on YouTube? And I didn't realise that the audio was pervading through the floorboards and keeping them awake downstairs. Leilani Momoisier, do you have any guilty pleasures? No, I don't feel guilty about any of my pleasures. <laughs> oh, Leilani. OK, we're going to take that energy and run with it and admit some guilty pleasures of our own. I mean, to be honest, and I... Don't think I'm just saying this. Mm. Like Leilani, I feel like I don't hold that much guilt about my pleasures either. Okay, so Riverdale. It's a show made for teenagers and Mm. I enjoy it, even though it is ridiculous and makes no sense. Do you think maybe you like it because it's ridiculous? If it wasn't ridiculous and wasn't seeming to have intent behind that, then yes, I would (laughs) would be like, out. Although, okay, so... There's a bunch of shows that I loved when they initially came out that I now view through a more quote-unquote woke lens mm-hmm. and that I do, I don't think it's like guilty pleasures in the way we understand it, but I do feel guilty actually about mm. enjoying them, like Sex in the City and mm. Girls. Yeah. I mean, when you asked me this the other day, my genuine response is much like Andrew, your first interviewee, just trashy horror films that I continue to watch to this day. And I think they do count as a guilty pleasure because... I understand that they are mostly, you know, misogynistic and have very, very little cultural value and are pretty suspect morally. But I watch them despite that and I still really enjoy them. Right. So I wonder if guilty pleasures, you know, the term has started to take on a slightly different meaning in this new woke context. Because it's less about I'm embarrassed about you knowing I like this and more the fact that we are liking something that people have called misogynistic or racist or sexist or any of those things. We've sort of grown to understand that maybe some of it wasn't as right on as we thought it was at the time. Exactly, yeah. So we heard in there, we heard Susan mention that part of her guilt over liking Mariah Carey was because it might be considered uncool or lowbrow. And that's something I've been thinking about a lot. You know, Mm. these distinctions that exist between highbrow and lowbrow art. Mm. And they do still exist, I think. Mm. They maybe exist less and less, but you just look at the crowd in a Marvel movie versus the crowd at a film festival to see that those distinctions exist. For sure, yeah. Mm. But as time goes on, I think they do become increasingly blurred. And I wanted to talk with someone who's incorporating something lowbrow, like pop culture, into a form that is considered high art. And in this case, that's poetry. I didn't want to shy away from referencing Taylor Swift and Kylie Minogue and Björk and Tori Amos and PJ Harvey. This is Wellington poet Chris Teese, whose celebrated collection of poems, He's So Mask, is littered with pop culture references. And I don't say littered because I'm implying rubbish. (laughs) (laughs) They are the things that I remember so vividly as I was sort of forming these life experiences. It was how I made sense of the world, how I made sense of myself, and I really wanted that to be reflected in the poetry. And I've seen this happening with a lot of the newer poets that I've been reading, and I think it's for similar reasons. These are the touch points that they have 
with what's going on in their lives at the moment. So Chris came into the studio for a chat and started by reading a poem. Notes for Taylor Swift, should she ever write a song about me. I look for men like I look for nouns, though I have very little use for them once I find them. I write out their names like blank checks and put my trust in their honesty. I revise my lists until I have no time to action them. Yes, they're meant to be an efficient exercise in compartmentalization, but there's always something I've overlooked, so I rip them up and start again. Like they say, once more with feeling. I lack the mechanics to say no, but I do have the common sense to run away from falling pianos. Some men I've loved have lacked that initiative. I'm destined to be a poster boy without a cause, without a slogan. But you can at least give me a chance, right? Make me a hit song for the ages. The last great crossover ballad. I don't know if you're a big reader of poetry. No, shamefully, the the only times I really get exposed to it are on Twitter. Yeah, Yeah, okay. (laughs) So as a teenager, I was obsessed with poetry and wrote a bunch of horrible poems with titles like I Am an Oxymoron. Amazing. Yeah, and then through my 20s, my interest in poetry actually waned and I can pinpoint the exact moment I got passionate about it again. And that was when the spin-off posted a Friday poem by Hera Lindsay Bird called Monica. I have seen that one, yes. So this is a poem that went viral. And if you haven't read it, you should search it out because it's very funny. It's about Monica from the TV show Friends. And there was something about the way that Hera spoke and about her humour and those recognisable touch points that all hooked me in again and opened me up to a whole world of other poets doing similar things, like Chris, of course. I think people sometimes have this reaction to having quote-unquote low art or pop culture references in poems because poems are meant to be seen as various serious business. And... I like to think that the poems in my book are still serious business, even though I call a poem um, notes for Taylor Swift, should she ever write a song about me? You know, that's sort of a, a wink to the audience saying, oh, you know, Taylor Swift, she breaks up with her boyfriends and then writes songs about them. But at the same time, it's actually a very serious poem about my own fears about finding a partner and my commitment issues and things like that. In the 80s, in America, there was this massive pushback from creative writing teachers and professors when their students were using pop culture references because it was going to date the work that they were producing and that there's this idea that things need to be timeless and last forever. Mm. And Pip Adam actually had included music references in The New Animals and she said she was worried that you know uh, it might date the book. But she also then came around to accepting that actually that is what's going to position it mm. in the future as, as this very specific time period that the book's world, you know, exists mm. in. Yeah, I feel like a lot of this push and pull is around that, is around timelessness versus mm. capturing a very specific moment. Yep. I wonder if that's what's led a lot of New Zealand poets to write about the landscape and the weather because those are the things that are always going to stick regardless of when you're going to read them. So pop culture is important because it can tell us about ourselves. Tell us about ourselves. It connects people. It connects people. I think it it connects people a lot more than high art does because high art is often reserved for a different class of people, for educated people, privileged people. It's put behind walls and locked up so not everyone can access it. 
but you know the models of distributing music and TV and films, whether they're legal or not, you know people can get their hands on it. Are we now going to see poetry groupies and forums and mass celebration of that work? I think they're already out there. Are they? If you look hard enough. Yeah. It's a terrible term, but I'm going to use it because that's what is being used. But like Insta poets, you know, they they have these that's ridiculous true, yeah. followings mm. that I envy, and they they have their super groups of fans that just hang on every single word and, and, and follow everything they do and pre-order all the books and you know they're on bestseller lists. And I think that's great, you know, whether or not it's your cup of tea. That's mm. local poet Chris Tees, that's spelled T-S-E, and his book He's So Mask is well worth searching out. And has a great title, that's I have so to say. so good, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you got any thoughts around the high art versus low art in terms of creating community thing? I wonder if, like so many other things, the internet is kind of helping to democratize uh, yeah. these things and, and remove that divide somewhat. I like that idea, though, that mm. low art is more of a communal endeavor. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. So it was about this point in the research and planning for this episode that I started to realize something about the people I was talking to. So we've had Andy and Carl and Chris, and they're all super clued up, wonderful speakers, but they're also all men. And as you heard Andy and I chatting about, when it comes to splatter films, it seems like the majority of creators and fans are men. Is this accurate? Do you think it's definitely the feeling I've gotten? I think that is accurate. Mm. I mean, like a lot of these things, it, it's definitely changing. And I know for a fact that there are more and more female horror directors out there. Yeah. There have always been the odd one, you know, starting in the 70s. But but no, it's it's... It's absolutely a male-dominated domain, or has been. Yeah, and when I did start Googling to check my assumption, I did find some really great lists of female-directed horrors, mm. which I need to check out. And I I reckon we're probably going to end up doing a pop culture episode about horror. So I don't know where I get that idea from, but I feel like maybe <laughs> you're going to take us there at some point. Can't wait. So I thought maybe that could be a future assignment for me. But I was racking my brain for examples of women doing things that some might consider to be, quote unquote, in bad taste. Mm. And this took me into a genre known as gross out comedy or body mm -hmm. comedy. You're going to mm -hmm. be familiar with this genre? Oh, God, very familiar. What are you, <laughs> what are you implying? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I feel like we're all familiar with it, but you're mm. our movie buff. So I, I thought maybe you'd be <laughs> in the best position to explain what we're talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, gross out comedies are movies that employ willful tastelessness. Mm. Using quite disgusting humour, uh, American Pie is, is a oh, good example. Oh yeah, the apple pie scene, classic. Yeah. yeah, Animal House. There's something about Mary. Yeah, so gross-out comedies do feel to me like they have been typically pretty boysy. You know, they're often described as kind of frat house comedies. But in 2011, that all changed with one film. Oh, you got food poisoning from that restaurant, didn't you? <laughs> oh my. Okay. Oh no. Oh my God. It's Bridesmaids, if you didn't already pick that up. It happened. So before you or anybody listening points out, I know there were films before this that could be argued were female-centred, gross-out comedies. You're shitting in the street. But this was the one that really broke through. Since that, we've seen a bunch of films and television shows come out with a similarly bachelorette party 
it's being called sometimes a laddette vibe, like girls trip and rough night with the films and TV like Fleabag and Insecure and Girls and Broad City, that kind of mm. thing. Mm. Good Lord, I love Fleabag so much. If anyone hasn't watched <laughs> Fleabag, after you've finished listening to this podcast, go yes. and seek it out. Yeah, I agree. It's just, it can be quite hard to find legally here. Where do you watch it? <laughs> Anyway, moving on. Um, and Broad City, similarly, I, I love, and we've already talked a lot about Insecure. It's, it's all great stuff. So mm. here in New Zealand, we have a female-centred web series that fits in this genre too. So I called a couple of trash bags in to talk about it. <laughs> yes. Oh, hey. Oh, hi. <laughs> we were doing ASMR in the microphone. So if you don't know what ASMR is, you'll have to Google it. We don't have time to go into that now. Yeah, but be prepared to be confused and not understand what you're looking at. Yeah, actually. maybe that's another future episode It as is well. a, a wormhole. <laughs> so those voices making weird sounds into the microphone belong to a couple of the women behind the web series Pussy, and that's spelled P-S-U-S-Y. So they are writer, creator and actor Jaya Beach-Robertson and season two director Anna Duckworth. Mm. So Pussy has been called New Zealand's broad city. I guess it's just two weirdo girls going about their weirdo 20-something lives and then all this really bizarre, unusual stuff happens to them. Stuff like walking in on your mum hosting an orgy, a oh bit of drug taking, dealing with yeast infections, that kind of thing. Just, just your classic everyday thing. Yeah, I mean, the second two I can deal with, but that first one is <laughs> nightmare fuel. It's a great episode, though. So I started with the obvious first question. Would you describe it, or is this really offensive, would you describe it as bad taste? I wouldn't say it's not bad taste. <laughs> it's definitely, it definitely pushes what taste is. I would definitely say it's, like, crude and vulgar. Yeah, totally. So the reason that I wanted Jaya and Anna to come in to talk about this is that when we talk about gross-out comedies or body comedy, you know, be it between you and I or in various opinion pieces and BuzzFeed lists online, the tone that we use to talk about them is really different if we're talking about a Boise one versus a Laddiette one. Mm. People talking about the Boise kind of gross-out comedy, it's very much like, oh, are we past this yet? You know, right. can we mm. can we move on already? Whereas when women do it, it's still very much amazing, revolutionary. Oh, I see, yeah. Yeah, that's totally true. Or in the case of Pussy, reactions like this. They're like, oh, I thought we weren't supposed to tell anyone that we have these thoughts or we have these conversations with only our best friend. So people are kind of find it quite freeing to watch Pussy. So I asked Jaya and Anna why we view gross-out comedies differently when they're made by and or for women. And just as a warning, this is the clip where things can get a bit, shall we say, descriptive. Because I definitely believe that women's bodies are political, whether we like it or not. You know, they're sexualized, they're political, especially when it comes down to abortion stuff or periods. It's gross. It's it's political. It's like there's everything about a woman's body that has at some stage in history been policed to some point so when you start showing it in a way that people aren't used to it's new and it's different and it's change but then Mm. there we've been really lucky to find a group of people that are like yes please I think there's a lot of shame around women's bodies that men don't experience as much like I think when you think about pop culture representations of like semen and that it's like pretty common, pretty normal. The idea of someone having semen on their 
face or mouth is like something we've seen in mainstream media. Whereas the idea of having menstrual blood on your face or in your mouth is like shocking. <laughs> I, I still felt my whole body like contract when you said that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's man. like something that people are totally uncomfortable with or it's like an unexplored territory when things that are predominantly male are so normal. In addition to the menstrual blood, even um, vaginal fluids, you know? Like I'm gonna I'm gonna go real gross, but like I I'm sort of now after pussy and people know me as kind of the pussy girl. I'm like yeah, you know I've got a I've got a heavily cleaning vagina, you know self cleaning vagina, um, and they're like uh, 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 oh, and I'm like what does yours not do that? It's part of your body to do that. Um, so I feel comfortable speaking about that now. But if we were to put that in front of everybody, it would probably be like oh wait oh hold on no don't say that. Okay, on that first point, two films sprang to mind, yeah. which featured menstrual blood in a way that I hadn't seen in a film before. One was The Florida Project, where... Oh, God, that's a beautiful the, movie. It's so... It's great. The mm. lead character, in a sort of fit of rage, pulls out her tampon and smacks it on the window. Yeah, I think I gasped <laughs> when that happened. Yeah. I did too. I mean, yeah. there was a moment where I wasn't sure that I'd seen what I'd seen. Do yeah, you know what I mean? amazing. Because it, it does still seem to be. Mm. And the other one was in the film Bad Neighbours 2. Which is this kind of genre. Exactly is this kind of thing. Yeah. And um, there's a feud between a sorority house yeah. and their neighbours. And uh, to attack the neighbours, something starts going dunk, 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 onto their windows and eventually you realise it's used tampons. Uh, <laughs> so during this process another thought occurred to me and I saw it echoed in a couple of articles online although I have to say that most of what I saw in regard to women doing this kind of thing was positive but the thought that came to me was you know yes women's bodies are political and yes we need to break down some of those taboos but in packaging it up in this frat boy style body comedy are women forging new ground or are they just mimicking men Mm. Mm. that's a really good question I, I feel like we're not mimicking men. Mm. If for me, I feel like we're mimicking our real life, the stuff that would be classed as like TMI or overshare. This is what we experience in our real life, but we barely ever see in the media. And there's this disparity between our real genuine lives and what we see reflected and we want to, like, balance that out. Mm. I would definitely add on to that. The TMI and the gross-out stuff is only a part of Pussy, and that's kind of some a lot of our intention to grow the show, is to not just talk about frat boy comedy or gross-out comedy, but to take that deeper and talk about the more, like, internally flawed parts of a person or sort of hold the mirror up to who we are as a as a society. Yeah, and I think the thing is what we wanted to do was represent women as diverse and complex and ugly sometimes and imperfect. A lot of time men are allowed to be imperfect and it's fine, whereas the standards for representations of women are so much narrower mm. and that doesn't reflect the real world. That's Jaya Beach-Robertson and Anna Duckworth from the web series Pussy, which is spelled P-S-U-S-Y. And that thing she just said about women being allowed to be imperfect made me think of Fleabag, because part of why mm. I love it so much is that she's such an asshole. Yeah, I mean, this, <laughs> I guess, is another thing that we're maybe seeing more of, mm. is, you know, anti-heroes have been celebrated for a long time, be it Tony Soprano or, or yeah. whoever. The, the female anti-hero where, you know, they're written to be bad people and, you know, it's fair enough to judge them as that. Is, is maybe that's kind of a new thing? Knowledge 
is power. Seize him. Cut his throat. Stop. Wait. I've changed my mind. Let him go. Step back three paces. Close your eyes. Power is power. I'm Tony Stamp, and we are talking all about taste, good taste, bad taste, tastelessness, that sort of thing. <laughs> We've got time to speak with one more person. Duncan Grieve is managing editor of the spin-off and a long-standing music critic. Though we might be about to lose all credibility here, we're about to see. <laughs> oh my goodness, Melody. <laughs> what on earth are you going to be talking claims, about? Big claims, bold claims. We're going to be talking about one of Duncan's favourite bands, no. <laughs> I'm here to talk about 660, which is certainly not one of my favourite bands, quite the reverse, but also a band I've always been quite fascinated by and have come to hugely respect from a, a business perspective. Earlier on, we heard Slate music critic and author Carl Wilson talk about critical punching bags, the musicians or artists who get lobbed about as a way of proving your superiority over others. And I mean, I actually just did that in Duncan's intro with 660, so shame on me. He mentioned Nickelback. I've had a think about some others that might be New Zealand-specific. I reckon maybe The Feelers was one. I think, yeah, maybe they scrape in, yeah. So one thing that 660 and probably all punching bags have in common that I find really fascinating is that the adoration for them by their often huge fan bases is matched by either disdain or at least indifference when it comes to critics and radio stations. And in the case of 660, I feel like most Kiwis don't know how popular they are. For example, last year they became the first band in New Zealand history to sell at Western Springs Stadium. So that's 50,000 tickets. It's, you know, for basically any other band that would be impossible. Yeah, I find it really fascinating that Lord, who's like a globally successful artist, a true celebrity, I think wouldn't be able to sell out Spark Arena Whereas 660, they're sort of every man, you know, you can imagine them walking down the road largely unmolested, mm. are the only people who could begin to contemplate playing a 50,000 capacity venue. And when I talked to them about it, they were like, oh, yeah, but Ed Sheeran played like three nights at Mount Smart. So, you know, that's where they're setting their sights on next. You know, this is not good enough for them. And this is what Duncan admires about them. It's their ambition and their gutsiness and their business savvy. I very genuinely think that they're geniuses in this realm and very genuinely as, as a person who's you know running his own business, admire them immensely for it because there was a lot of vision, a lot of bravery in it. So they were one of the first bands to really put a huge emphasis on Facebook, which for a lot of people is talking past the media. So you don't necessarily need gatekeepers if mm. you're going straight to your audience. They also sold tickets direct to fans, distributed their own music. You know, their first ever show in Auckland, they booked the town hall. That's a monumental thing. For, for many artists, that would represent a career pinnacle. That was their first show in Auckland. The whole way they operate, you know, when you think about New Zealand bands, they have, and sometimes I think this is a, an affected thing or it's a reflexive defence mechanism against a future lack of success is it's sort of like you turn up, you, you sort of practice for a couple of hours 
and then you get on the beers or something. That's the cliche, the sort of flying nun, shambling, you know, the whole thing's kind of lo-fi. The idea of being incredibly professional, having a workspace, treating it like a job, that's so incredibly uncool. But I think that reflects more on us as critics and as, as sort of fans than it does on 660. I mean, in New Zealand, try hard is an insult. Yeah. I think it's one of the singular things that's most instructive about our national character <laughs> is the idea that to try hard at something is almost one of the, the most embarrassing things you can do. Okay, setting aside the fact that I realise that a lot of people like their music and mm. there's nothing that anyone can do to argue uh, that, yeah. anytime I hear a pundit like Duncan talk about them, they're always praising their business savvy. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, I'm just saying that's different from being a great artist. You're right. Like it seems, for those of us who appreciate pure artistry, it seems <laughs> too calculated. Or you know, you imagine them sitting down and studying the charts and being like, "What of what ingredients do these songs use, and how can we replicate them?" And then, of course, that pays off when you look at the charts and the, and it was just six sixty replicated over and over again. Mm. But it seems like there's also magic in there because as Duncan said their first ever gig was at the town hall like not any band could go out and be like we're going to take this really seriously we're going to sit down and make some hits and pull that off like there's something Mm -hmm. else going on here No I think you're right yeah I've just never heard a critic say oh man that's such a great band But something that I've noticed about critics and about music lovers not all of them but many of them is this trend where they get older and ideas about what is good and what isn't broaden or they soften. Duncan talks about at one point in his life when he was writing columns about the singles charts, every week he was ranting about how much he hated 660. And then later on they are more likely to say things like we're hearing from Duncan about 660 and like we heard from Carl Wilson about Celine Dion, like, well, they're not my cup of tea, but I admire them, that kind of thing. So I'm interested in that as well, about how tastes maybe soften or expand. And Duncan tells a story that demonstrates this quite well, I think. I was talking to Chris Knox when I was just starting out as a critic. And he was, I mean, he was so many things, but he was also a brilliant critic. And I um, loaned him this, this record by a band I adored called Lightning Bolt. You know, this was a very unpopular band, two-piece. They made this sort of droney racket. And Look at me, what good taste I've got, Chris Knox. Yeah, I think yeah, you'll yeah. like this thing. It's sort of ragged and, and unkempt like you. And months later, I, I saw him again, and I was like, oh, what, what did you think of that record? And I was like, oh, yeah, I put it on. I didn't like it. I've sort of, something to the effect of, I've heard that kind of thing before. I've grown out of valuing that so highly. And I do think there's there's some kind of impetus when you're young to push to the extremes, to find value in the absolute bleeding edge of something and therefore disdain the centre or the mainstream. And um, there is a snobbishness and a lack of respect for a mainstream or middle New Zealand or population of anywhere that, that is oftentimes, not always or entirely, baked into critiques of large artists and, mm. you know, That's something, as a critic, you have to wrestle with. You can't pretend it's not the case that when you're mad about Train or Maroon 5 or something, you know, that there isn't a a contempt for people also baked into that. Yeah, I I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I think he's right. 
I was really interested in what he was saying about, uh, you know, when you're a younger music fan, you tend to go to the extremes mm. and, and seek out the extremes and then you might mellow over time. I mean, that's definitely been true of me. I'm often quite envious of younger music fans that they still have that hunger because I just don't really have it anymore. But occasionally I will stumble across something that is really extreme and that I do still genuinely love. And that's that's a really special, beautiful thing, I think. Yeah. I would be interested to see research about young people's music tastes now. My instinct would be that they would be more diversified now Completely. because of Spotify. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I think so. Like everyone that I know who works or DJs at student radio are huge pop fans, but yeah. they're also playing this sort of alternative stuff. It feels great. It feels like a better position to be. I um, totally agree. Yeah, mm. And that is something that Carl Wilson also agreed with. There's the sense of trying to hold tight to something to be stalwart to something is a very tense position and being able to be more fluid and being able to understand that, you know, different kinds of art can be right for different people and right for different situations and right for different moments in our lives. And the music that you want to hear when you've lost a loved one and you and you need to console yourself versus the music that you want to hear when you're on a road trip and you just want something to give you fuel and energy. We talk about music often in critical contexts as though it just stands alone and only means what it means as as if it were kind of a, a painting on the wall of a museum. But most of music is, interacts with our lives. And so to enjoy that kind of interaction and that flexibility, that all seems like a much less paranoid and, and more luxurious way to interact with the world. Oh, don't you love Carl Wilson? Yeah, it's a great, great book. Seek it out. It's called Let's Talk About Love, Why Other People Have Such Bad Taste. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture. I'm Tony Stamp. I'm Melody Thomas. You can subscribe to the podcast via Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or any number of other podcast providers. And if you like what we do, please leave a review. And if you don't like what we do, I feel like you should leave a review anyway, but make it a positive one. Mm, constructive criticism, please. <laughs> Pop Culture is produced by us, and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. So what's in our next episode? Well, let me just say that pop culture gets woke. Oh, intriguing. Okay, can't wait to hear it. Listener.